Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan and I'm here as always with David Scott. Ecstatic to be back. And our guest this week back on the show. Uh, we're very excited to have him here um, for what I'm sure, because we've got a lot to talk about. It's Stephen Kukulis, one of Australia's best known and most forthright economic commentators. Cook, great having you back on the show. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, David. Uh, so quickly, the agenda, we're going to talk about some of the economic data we've seen lately. Um, we'll talk about the federal budget update that's coming and the bit I'm looking forward to most. So I'm going to try and uh, get through those first two items quickly. A review of the uh, call from RBS at the start of the year to sell everything. Stephen invited the analyst uh, to um, engage with him on a $10,000 bet that he would be wrong, that the, that the RBS analyst would be wrong. Uh, and we'll review how that uh, call has performed and uh, that, I think, is going to be uh, quite a bit of fun. But first, GDP. David, a negative quarter. It was. Uh, 0.5%? 0.5%. It was the largest contraction since the final quarter of 2008, and I'm I'm sure many people are well aware of what was going on then. It was uh, not a very pretty time, not only for the Australian economy, but the global economy. And markets had been expecting a quarterly decline of just 0.1%. And in fact, all of those forecasts uh, in the last week as we got the GDP partials in, um, like particularly with CapEx, um, uh, economists started saying, hey, hang on. Um, this doesn't look good. Uh, Stephen, uh, what was your take on it? Yeah, well, I think the initial forecast for GDP about two weeks before the result came out was about plus 0.3. And then we got the net exports, which were a bit weaker than people thought. Inventories were a bit weaker than people thought. Government demand was a bit weaker than people thought. And uh, we had this accumulation of everything that could go wrong with a quarterly GDP result did go wrong. Normally, and David's been around long enough to realise this too, when you're forecasting GDP, you won't get every component, but normally one that you under-forecast is offset by one that comes in stronger. So you generally are within a ballpark of whatever the number happens to be. But this time... Every little error, it seemed, to be on the downside. So we've got this actually quite a substantial fall in GDP. So it was sort of a shock. It is something of a concern, but I don't think it smells like the proverbial recession or anything like that. The economy's soft. I think that's fine. But a recession... Highly unlikely. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think one of the one of the interesting things was for me was the big crash in consumer sentiment that followed it. So the ANZ uh, Roy Morgan um, confidence index slid by four point four percent in the wake of it, still slightly above its long run average. Um, but with consumers being and household consumption being such uh, being the largest part um, of economic activity in the country, um, this is not the kind of moves that you want to. Uh, see arising from this, and I think I suppose it's one of those things that bad news can sort of feed on itself. It can, and fe- and in fact, that's why the government and even the Reserve Bank have been so careful not to mention recession, to say that things 
are okay, that the economy is not bad, and that's a, a prudent way to be. But one thing that also struck me when I was sort of backtracking on where the economy is, where we're finishing 2016, is that when we looked at things like the employment momentum, and we all know the problems with the monthly employment numbers, but if, if we look at the trend numbers, yeah, which probably is a fair assessment, we've basically had a stalling of employment growth. So despite population increasing by 20-odd thousand per month, we're getting no jobs created. And that's a significant underperformance in terms of the jobs market. So curiously, weak GDP, weak jobs. You then throw in what we do know about the wages side, and we've got wages growth at a record low, just, just under 2% for the year to the, the September quarter. You throw in the CPI readings, they're very low. So in a sense, if my economic theory was that if, you're, if your GDP, your economic growth is weak, you do get weak employment, tick. You do get weak wages growth, tick, and you do get very low inflation. So, again, it's not to overstate how bad things are, because, I, as I said at the beginning, I don't think the economy is anywhere near a recession, but we just haven't got that momentum to drive growth to 3% plus in terms of real GDP, not for one quarter. We need it for a year or two at the moment, and we're, and we're a long way from that. Uh, and the capex, uh, I suppose, was one part that was a, a bit of a drag uh, on it, you know. So, and, and that's the kind of thing where, um, you know, big investment decisions can sometimes take a long time to um, materialise and, and so on. Um, so, capex can be um, a little bit volatile, um, and also you get the revisions to it. The way the methodology works with with the ABS, we get it revised each each time. So. Basically, I think most of the commentary uh, that we saw uh, in a frantic sort of uh, uh, day that it was, um, was that most um, uh, economists looking at this see CAPEX, uh, importantly, um, not being as bad in the next quarter, and that uh, should um, uh, help uh, even it out. It should, and in fact, if we're looking for glimmers of light, you know, the non-mining CAPEX numbers weren't so bad. So we know that mining's still got probably another year or so uh, of falls, big negatives each and every quarter until we find some sort of bottom, maybe this time next year. Um, but it's the non-mining part which had been the problem for the RBA. Former Governor Glenn Stevens had been lamenting, yeah, why can't we get the, uh, the retail sector to invest more, the tourism sector? Yeah, why can't we get other parts of the economy to pick up the private sector investment? And there's just a little glimmer in the national accounts and to some extent the CapEx expectations numbers that there could be a turning point in non-mining. So that's one thing. And it, but, but as you said, it is slow to materialise. It does take time to get the traction and the real GDP effect of a lot of CapEx projects. So that's, I, th I think, you know, we mentioned consumer demand before. That, of course, is a critical driver of growth. But it's this other part. It's the CapEx, I think, is the one that if, you know, I was to go back and have my wish on where I want to see growth in 2017 and 2018 coming from. Sure, you'd have steady and ongoing growth in household consumption, but you'd really want to see a sharp lift in non-mining capex to be confident that your economy is doing stuff. And even on that score, and this is one of the other problems with the September quarter GDP numbers, was that we had had uh, public investment being nice and strong. A lot of this infrastructure stuff that's going on, particularly in New South Wales, uh, Victoria to some extent, Queensland to some extent, but we had had state government infrastructure spending. We had a quirky drop, I suppose you could call it, in the September quarter, and my hunch is that we'll get that bouncing back because the projects are still going on. It was probably just a measurement issue. Of course, and one thing too is, 
there was, I hate to go and like lament on the weather, but the weather probably was a factor as well. Like, you know, it's used for every excuse under the sun to explain people's moods and, you know, everything else. But, uh, we actually look at what the, uh, the, uh, Bureau of Meteorology had reported over the, uh, the quarter. In many parts of the country, it was either the wettest or the second wettest, uh, spring on record. Uh, and you look at things like uh, residential uh, investment, uh, residential construction investment, things on those lines, they all fell as well, and surprisingly, given how many uh, were... Go yeah, well, because the, the last negative quarter that we had was from the Queensland floods, I think, 2004. Flooded the mines. Cyclone Yazi, I was working in the PM's office back then, and that was uh, considered to be, oh, holy hell, has our luck changed? Because, of course, you get that quirky number, like the number that we just saw recently. And, of course, the big fear from the politicians is, is oh, my God, will we get another one? And, of course, that was the issue. And that was, yes, indeed, weather-related. Yeah. Um, so the one uh, thing I, I um, was going back through some of the data um, towards the end of the, that quarter, uh, and um, the PMI, um, the Australian Industry Group, P, sorry, the PSI, so the Performance of Services Index, um, there was a really horrendous number in that. Now, we sometimes talk about PMIs and the sort of, you know, people who follow markets, we get very excited about these numbers because a lot of people think that they're very good leading indicators. And then, but they're quite volatile, noisy, um, and high frequency. Um, but there was a number in that. So, um, just quickly give you a baseline on PMIs. Um, if there's a reading um, above 50, it signals a, a, a sector in expansion. And if there's a reading below 50, it's, it signals that activity is con contracting in the sector. Okay. Now, the, there, is a, there, there are sector sub-indices to um, the survey. And the transport and storage sub-index printed in August 32.9. So you should see the chart. It just shears off a cliff um, for that month. Um, so big, big con uh, contraction in an industry that's really all about moving things around the country. Um, and uh, particularly like the retail sector, right? So where the, you get that very, very large volumes um, and it can maybe be telling you a little bit about consumer demand. Um, so what's interesting is that sector has rebounded very, very strongly, but it's still in contraction. It was up nine points in November uh, to 44.5, but that still means that it has been contracting since that August period, um, which I think is very interesting. Now, there's a whole bunch of things in this, which is that there's some technology changes, for example, which are reducing the needs for basically trucks and um, physical deliveries and movement of, of goods. Um, and also when you've got um, that, that very logistically heavy sectors like mining um, and manufacturing, when they're, when they're a little bit smaller, maybe that's, um, that's feeding into this too. Um, but I think um, still um, a pretty interesting, and to your point, Stephen, the whole thing about the loss of momentum in the jobs data might have been the other canary in the coal mine. Yeah, that was. And we, again, it was easy, and it's still is easy, to rubbish the ABS and, and their employment numbers. So Which in a sense, I have done many yeah, times. Yeah, indeed. And so in a sense, you see a negative number come out. It's, it's ignored. Now, part of me says that it's telling us something. It's still the best indicator on jobs that we've got. We've got no, nothing else other than perhaps ANZ job ads or some of the employment components of the business surveys. So when we do see the jobs number, there is information in there. However, 
you know, however sort of quirky it might be. So there's, there's these things. But the, again, RBA, Treasury are still keen to find out these good, reliable, leading indicators of the economy. And so that transport one is actually a, a very, very good one uh, because it does give an indication of movement of goods. And the more goods that are being moved, the stronger the economy must be, almost by definition. Now, to some extent, of course, we know that we're moving towards a services-based economy and, and these sorts of things. So perhaps it's lost some of its potency. But it is interesting that you've got, you had that warning, if you like. Uh, and then if you start overlaying all these numbers, in a sense, you can look back and think, well, yeah, well, it was going to be a weak quarter. So the magic now is working out what's going to be happening in the December quarter. And of course, more important than just a quarterly GDP result, what's happening in 2017. So let's talk about some of that ma- magic. Uh, David, um, what's your take on how cu- um, the current state of the economy and the outlook for next year? I think it's quite soft, the domestic economy. Um, I was just listening to you guys talk about the PMI surveys and the NAB survey yesterday and and... God forgive the, uh, the ABS survey as well. But the one common denominator across all of those surveys is that the employment readings are all very weak. And that's a sign of what's going on in the economy. Yes, it's a lagging indicator, but it's a sign that hey, employment's not growing, the, eco- the economy's not growing quick enough to go and generate employment. So it's telling you a little bit about where we're heading. Uh, I look at the, uh, excluding all the factors like government spending you know, and export volumes, which tend to go and bump around and you know, make one quarter of GDP look very strong and another one look very weak. Uh, I look at the uh, underlying trend, particularly what's going on with the household consumption side of things. It's still very, very tepid, and I think that's going to be the underlying theme of next year. I'm not expecting a rip-roaring recovery uh, in the Australian economy. Maybe there's a glimmer of hope. It's the side of the income side of the economy, given what we're seeing with, uh, with commodity prices, whether that's got a potential feed through to wage growth, which is very important for the federal budget. Uh, it's debatable. It has to be probably for a sustained period of time. Yeah, I think that you've covered a lot of the critical issues. Um, I, I, I'm still erring slightly on the side of optimism. <laughs> um, I'm thinking that this commodity cycle does have something behind it. It's not just this quirky, you know, day traders in Shanghai sort of pumping up the futures market in iron <laughs> ore and coal. It's the taxi drivers. <laughs> whatever it is. But yeah, there's, some, there's something behind it. It's been long enough and big enough now, the, the, the rebound in a lot of these commodity prices. And even if they come off a bit, they're still going to be much higher next year than probably were at the beginning of this year. So that's, that's telling me something. And even the world economy, um, it's, it's still okay. You know, it's not strong. It's not booming. China's still got a huge amount of problems. Fed's still hiking interest rates or wanting to. Uh, Eurozone, heaven forbid, that's my factor X for next year. I think this time next year we'll be thinking, my goodness, Eurozone actually has done quite well, notwithstanding problems in Italy, uh, which are obviously quite acute, but it, it seems to have some sort of momentum there. And we're talking about uh, these various purchasing manager indices. In the Eurozone, they're all looking pretty good. They're all actually looking okay. So in a sense for Australia, if the world economy is doing reasonably well, our major trading partners are doing, are doing reasonably well, commodity prices are lifting, then it would take some sort of monumental policy incompetence for us not to ride on the coattails of a better global economy. And I, and I don't see that problem there. You know, maybe the RBA should have cut more aggressively. Uh, maybe the fiscal consolidation... Uh, even though it's not been very much, um, uh, could have, you know, it needs to err on the side of just letting the automatic stabilisers do their thing, take a deep breath and live with a bigger budget deficit for the next year and then worry about it if and when the economy is stronger next year. Which leads me nicely on to um, this um, next topic, which is the, the, the budget update uh, coming next year. So 
Um, the forecast deficit was 35 billion. Um, ratings agencies have been talking about the ability of the government to deliver sa savings through the parliament. You know, and we had this week recently, and we talked about this before on the podcast, where there was this agonizing in, in Canberra over the backpacker tax, which, you know, I mean, it just chump change uh, to the budget. Um, Tiny rounding error in terms of the revenue. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and it led to a one nation senator crossing the floor, but the signal it sends is, you know, uh, the Senate is still um, problematic for, for the government. Um, so we saw a compromise deal earlier this year, 6.3 billion savings over the forward estimates. Not, not bad. Um, to the, on the commodity prices point, which you just raised, um, I, I may need to eat my words, um, uh, because uh, I pre predicted a couple of months ago on, on this podcast that there'd be a mild improvement in the budget bottom line thanks to commodity prices. But to tie it together with what we were just talking about, you still need a strong economy. Um, the, the fundamentals um, that are for budget repair are they need to, you know, the, the GDP needs to be growing um, at a decent rate, 1.8% with the annualized rate through the, the September quarter. Um, you probably need it up in the mid twos. Um, uh, you need the job creation um, and uh, you, you know, some, uh, Wages pressure would be helpful as well um, to help on the the income tax side. Um, so, what do you see happening now next week? Yeah, I, I think my feedback um, is that there's a broad offset of the weak, weaker economic growth, weaker employment, weaker wages. That's clearly a big negative for the budget bottom line, offset by the stronger income. And as David was talking about, this commodity price. Uh, rally is beneficial, definitely beneficial. Again, with a lag, here we are in December, and it's not really going to impact on the budget bottom line until next financial year, because you know, firms are only just getting these prices now. You know, it's not having an impact on current tax payments or company tax payments. So, I think um, yeah, there are off, there are so many moving parts to the budget, um, even even on a constant. Uh, policy basis. There's no change in policy. The automatic stabilisers are very powerful. You've got to remember that total revenue and total expenditures roughly uh, getting close to half a trillion dollars a year. And so a 1% forecasting error, which isn't much, um, is $5 billion on the bottom line. You get both of them wrong, there's a $10 billion swing just on, on you know, a reasonable assumption being a little bit wrong. Um, but the bottom line and the rating agency concerns, look, yeah, the, the, the path to improve or to repair the budget, these sorts of things, has just been burdened by the political impasse. And it's convenient to blame the Senate now, and I'm happy to blame them as well. Um, but really, for, for many years now, and it's, a, and it's a, both sides of politics are as to blame as the other side, in a sense, because they've both had their term in office, Labor until recently, and now three, three and a bit years of the coalition, to actually put stuff on the table, to put reforms on the table and not just fly the kite about uh, Medicare co-payments or negative gearing changes or whatever the case may be, capital gains tax changes. Um, it's actually doing something about it. Don't fly the kite. It's actually articulate the case to the public. That's, that's I think, the thing that's been missing. It's this economic policy leadership. And I know it's easy for us to sit around here and bag the politicians but we don't have an advocate in the federal parliament at the moment who's able to articulate how to do it, why it's important, and 
the benefit or the costs of not doing it in a sense that, yeah, I'm still not hugely concerned about our budget deficit and our level of government debt. But with each day, with each week, with each year that we kick the can down the road, I am getting a little bit more concerned. And we've been kicking it down the road for five years now. Um, and, and of course, with, um, with, with yields rising now, the cost of borrowing uh, rising fast. Yes. Um, well, I think compared with budget time, the, the broad measure of yields, borrowing costs of the government are, are up at least 50 basis points. And if most people's forecasts are right next year, it's going to be even more. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting. Um, the, 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 the treasury forecasts for the unemployment rate and for the um, GDP growth rate and for inflation are going to be really central and going to be really interesting to see what they come up with. And they have to be lower. I think on any reasonable assessment, uh, they have to be lower than they were at budget time, just crunching through the numbers that we've got. Or maybe the unemployment rate will be constant, but the participation rate, uh, hours, work type measures, the PAYG tax collections will, will almost certainly be, be weaker by a significant amount. So the, the, the question's got to be, how do, how do we paint this picture where, frankly, if we want, and we the electorate, we the consumers, want the government to provide a decent pension, a decent education system, a decent health system, good defence for our economy, good roads, and I think everybody says, yes, we do want the government to provide a, a, a particularly high level, and that's, that's fine. Uh, the question is, well, how do you pay for it? So it comes back to this question about revenue. It is a revenue issue in my view. Sure, always trim expenditure. Yep, you, you want to have an efficient government sector. Uh, but I think for the structural change, to get to that surplus a little sooner and to make sure that it stays there, not for one year. You know, we, we need actually a five years, if not a decade, of you know, smallish budget surpluses to be put into the 2020s, for example. Um, it's got to be revenue, and not just from a stronger economy. There's got to be some structural changes. Do you have a view on the enterprise tax plan, as it's known, the corporate tax cuts? My default position is always to have lower taxes, um, with a very important asterisk next to that, and that asterisk in the footnote is when they can be afforded. Uh, you know, I, I think we would be benefiting if we could sort of trim income tax scales, if we could trim company tax rates. Yes, fine. I'd do it all the time. But it's got to be in the context of where, where's the budget bottom line. And at the moment, as we've just been discussing, as we're about to find out in the weeks ahead and in the next budget in May next year, you know, the budget deficit is still large and it's still, you know, four or five years down the track that we get a, a wafer-thin surplus. So here we are with a proposal to cut company tax. So my default position is that's fine. But my problem with that is that we, we just want to have a period where we lock in those surpluses a bit more. So I'd say push that aside. I know there's global competitive issues and these sorts of things, but we've just got to ensure that um, the budget surplus, I would argue, is more important than trimming company tax scales. So on the competitive side, like how big uh, a factor do you think those comparative tax rates are? So say when you get the UK around, down around 20%, the US uh, under um, Mr. Trump is, uh, you know, like... Potentially <laughs> seven. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, but, but how, um, how significant a factor do you think that, are, that is in corporate, in the, in the real corporate world? It's, uh, look, 
there are a lot of companies that can't set themselves up overseas. So that you know, you medium-sized business that employs 20 plumbers or something, they can't incorporate in Bermuda or in the UK or in Singapore. Um, and the interesting thing is that there are a number of jurisdictions now that have those 20 and 15% tax rates and companies aren't, well, companies, some companies have already set up there, but they're not flocking there to sort of follow up on that. So in a sense, you'd say, well, you know, if, if, um, if our company tax structure is so oppressive to companies, they'd already be incorporating themselves in Singapore or Bermuda or wherever it happens to be, and they're not. Or, or some of them are, but not enough of them. So it, arguably the question should be, that um, comes back to the company tax issue, is there should be some offset to the $50 billion. If you're going to give the $50 billion on the company tax rates, and we trim it down to 25 eventually across all sizes of businesses, um, do we try to raise that revenue or recoup or claw back some of that revenue by improving the compliance of some of the big multinationals who we know don't pay much, if any, tax. And we saw the ATO data just earlier this week confirming that 700 and... I can't remember now, 730-odd of the big ASX companies pay no tax. And um, that's fine because they're not making any money, but, you know, there's the, there's the pub test there and... Um, yeah. That's a big issue for selling policy reform. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that can be a little bit unfortunate with that whole, those ATO lists of, you know, because, you know, a company will, will make X, will draw in X billion in revenue um, and people get outraged that they, they pay no tax on it. But the thing is that their costs were higher than... Correct. The and, and that's the problem. Yeah, yeah. You, don't, you don't pay tax on revenue, you pay tax on profits. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. Um, Dave, can I quickly get your take on how the economy sort of looks next year and, and whether you think the RBA is probably need, going to need to, uh, cut, to cut again? Oh, I've already said that. I think it's going to be fairly subdued. I like what Kirk said in relation to where the global economy goes. You know, the Australian economy almost always follows. Uh, I like to use the analogy of having like the cork on a sea and when like, you know, you're getting the big, uh, big swell coming up and you start seeing it lift, the Aussie, dollar, Aussie, uh, sorry, Aussie economy tends to go and lift along with it. Um, I can sit on the fence and say that uh, that I think that there will be on hold, and that's my base case. That's what I think they actually will do. But if there's going to be a movement in either direction, I still think it's to the downside, not the upside. Uh, Stephen Rates? Oh, look, I, I think they will be dragged kicking and screaming to a rate cut. Yeah, the property market is something that they... Uh, are, prob are probably the biggest reason why they're not cutting right now. Um, and that's probably because that a couple of years ago they were so slow uh, to implement sort of macroprudential issues or to advise on macroprudential and that the government was slow to pick up on, the, on those sorts of things. Now, there's been some change there, but as again, since the election's gone and we know that negative gearing is here for at least another three years, you've seen investor demand kick up again. So uh, that's the concern that they've got. But if we get the economy muddling along at, say, something like two to two and a half real GDP growth. If the unemployment rate is five and a half to six, which I think is a central case, I'm not sure what David's forecasts are for unemployment. In, you know, so we've got low inflation, low wages. You know, the Fed hikes, but almost no one else is. I can't see the Bank of Japan, um, <laughs> the ECB, the Bank of England, Bank of Canada even, they're, they're not in a hiking mode. The, the US is a slightly different thing. Yes, they're a big economy. So in a sense, um, uh, we could even take advantage, or the RBA could take advantage of this current issue, trim rates, maybe knock a cent or two off the Aussie dollar, just give us a bit more competitiveness. We're at a time when commodity prices are booming, so in a sense, it's a 
uh, it's a policy stimulus that, yes, you've got the concern on housing, but unlike other fiscal measures, this costs nothing. It's free. It's just a, a tweak of a, of a press release from the RBA, and you actually get the risk of stronger growth. And the, the other thing about the RBA is that, um, and again, I have to refer back to Glenn Stevens' comments, uh, the path of least regret. So what's the risk that a rate cut now, for example, or in the next three months, causes inflation to blow out of the top end of the target range? I'd say it's next to nothing, David. What, you know, even if they slashed 50 points this afternoon, we went back to our desk and yes. saw the RBA is cut to 1%. What's the chance that you would be having a forecast of underlying inflation above 3%? None. Yeah, yeah. That's the path in, of least in, regret. In, in the medium term. It's interesting you, you touched on something too, given uh, Governor Lowe's background. One of the wild cards is definitely around housing policy. You mentioned macroprudential tools. Now, it seems to be a common theme that we always talk about. I know oh, if it wasn't for the Sydney property market, to a lesser degree, Melbourne would have lower interest rates, would probably have a lower currency. But those areas, whilst they're going to deliver a huge wealth benefit, the wealth effect to consumers, they're also perhaps hindering progress in actually going and making things where financial settings where they should be stimulatory, even more so than what they are at the moment. So who knows? Lowe has definitely got a background where he's gone and mentioned a whole lot of uh, you know, different tools and measures to go and control risks, particularly in the housing market. Who knows what's going to come up? It won't be implemented by the RBA, but certainly it'll be in conjunction with them and APRA. And of course, we've seen the banks uh, themselves um, doing some um, out-of-cycle uh, rate increases and not small ones, um, sort of 10, um, 10, but I think 10 uh, basis points on the lower end, but up to 35, 45. Um, Even more on some of the fixed rate products. I think mm. that they're you know, measuring what's happening in the bond market and then the swaps market, the implied yield there. They've had actually passed on 30, 40 and 50 mm. on some of the term, term mortgage rates, which um, has to be dampening. It has to be. Uh, certainly going to be uh, an interesting year next year. So you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Now, I just want to take one quick um, uh, moment uh, for a word from our sponsors, um, or lack thereof. So we started this podcast uh, back in May, um, and I, I have to say um, I did it sort of almost kicking and screaming at uh, David's insistence that we should um, that uh, there'd be a market for it, and he was right. Um, so he knows his markets. Uh, he also appears to know his audiences as well. Um, so we've been really thrilled with the reception. Um, I'm very grateful for um, all of the all the great guests that we've had on. Um, but um, we like to build this out in 2017 and make it bigger. So um, just to mention that we are looking for um, the right kind of partner um, to help us develop the show. Um, so if you uh, are a CMO or you know somebody uh, who um, has uh, an interesting marketing budget, we'd love to chat to you. Okay, um, so we're here with Stephen Kukulis and David Scott. Now, at the start of this year... <laughs> <clears throat> excuse me. Let me just get ready for this. Um, there was an analyst called Andrew Roberts at, um, at RBS. I think he still exists. Yeah. There was. There, there is, I think. Oh, there is, yeah. 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 <laughs> Last time I looked. Um, so he wrote a note that um, famously contained two words, sell everything. Um, so he said, sell everything except high-quality bonds. Um, in, in, this was a, a, a rates weekly newsletter to clients. He said, danger is lurking out there for every investor. Uh, he was particularly wary on China and didn't see any 
potential uh, growth driver in the global economy. Now, it was a pretty dark time. Um, Dave, you were insanely busy, more, more, more busy than you'd uh, have expected for January. Yeah, I was going back. Uh, I was trying to go and get out to the, uh, the cricket. Uh, I thought it was a wet, uh, wet test match. But uh, yeah, it was uh, just amazing going into the office and all of a sudden Chinese, uh, Chinese stocks in particular um, sort of really got everyone's attention. There was movements in uh, FX reserves and uh, in the UN beforehand. Obviously, we saw the uh, UN devaluation that happened in August. So we're laying down the groundwork, but yeah, when the stock market, uh, famously two, uh, two days uh, in the first week of uh, January, um, was shut early because they fell by their maximum amount during the, uh, the session, certainly caught the, uh, the interest of every investor in the world, including obviously uh, Mr. Roberts. Yeah, that's right. Um, so selling everything, so basically liquidating all your portfolio and, um, um, and hiding your money under the, uh, under the mattress uh, was a big call. Uh, now we got a lot of headlines for it. Um, we certainly wrote um, a number of stories about it on, on Business Insider. Um, okay, but at the time, uh, Stephen didn't believe that this was a very smart call. Uh, and invited Mr. Roberts to uh, engage with him on a $10,000 bet. So, uh, and you selected yeah. a range of asset classes. And I picked a range of asset classes that were implied in his note. And look, I admire people who make a big call. I think it's great, and it's what makes financial markets. I love markets, I love the noise, I love the volatility, and I like trending markets. There's a whole bunch of information about financial markets, and people who put their necks on the chopping block and make a call about RBA rates, currencies, stocks, you name it. However, <laughs> uh, and, and, and that's great, but I'm one that um, uh, looks at markets and if there's a trading opportunity, you take it. Uh, if you're willing to sort of make a big call, you should be prepared to back it up and not just sort of shout it from the rooftop and then when someone challenges you, Run into your, um, run into your burrow and hide. So I saw this and thought, well, hang on, there's blood in the streets. And one thing that I've learned over many, many years is that when markets look as if they've overshot or there's weakness or, um, you can, you can take people on. So I sent my note out and I sent him an email. He didn't reply, uh, Mr. Roberts, but, um, um, it just looked to be a really crazy call at the bottom, right, almost exactly the wrong time. Now I'm not being the smart aleck after the event. But it just looked to be a wrong call, and I offered him that $10,000 bet. If any of the 11 indicators, the 11 asset classes that were implied in his note, he only needed to get six of them that fell during the course of 2016, and I'd give him 10,000 Aussie dollars, not Zimbabwe dollars, Aussie dollars, I made that very clear. Um, and if uh, he got less, he could give me $10,000. Alas, he didn't take the bet, because when I look at the markets now, I think it's 11 nil to me. Yes, uh, it is. <laughs> let's, <Shalaki. laughs> let's, uh, let's have a look down through it. So we pulled up the scorecard today. So at the time you, 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 uh, offered the bet, S&P 500, uh, was one, uh, was the first, uh, category. That was at the time at 1925. Uh, and it's currently, uh, 2271 for a gain of 18%. That would have been nice to be long, buy everything. So that was one of the ones that I thought was crazy. And the other one, again, David, as you probably noted very clearly, at that beginning of 2016, the emerging markets were getting caned. They had been really, really smashed, and there was a huge concern about you know, the, the recession in Brazil and the Chinese slowdown. So 
Two of the other markets that I put in for, for my challenge with Mr. Roberts were sort of proxy, the big proxies for emerging markets, so China and Brazil stocks. And uh, well, Brazil in particular has had a, an absolute corker, and even China's doing okay. Yeah, Br- Brazil, um, the Iba Vespa. Uh, is it fifty percent? Nothing like an impeachment uh, to go and stir, <laughs> yeah, stir the markets. <laughs> and the Olympic Games. Uh, and um, so then we had um, uh, Japan as well. Now the Nikkei has had a wild year, uh, and it was seventeen thousand two hundred um, at uh, uh, at the time in January, and it's currently sitting pretty at nineteen two fifty. Um, I suppose the yen, everything that's happened in the last few weeks with the with the um, with the the, 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 the Trump election, uh, the surge in the U.S. dollar, weakening of the yen, um, and what a lot of U.S. investors, institutional investors, tend to do is rotate into Japanese stocks when the yen falls. So, twelve um, percent up uh, for Japan. Uh, U.S. house prices uh, doing quite nice. Yeah, I put house prices in because, again, they're a big asset class and there were, well, particularly in, uh, so it was US, UK and Sydney house prices were in there. And I thought, yeah, there's a risk that uh, if uh, Mr. Roberts was right, one or two of them would be weaker, particularly Sydney and the UK where there were bubble type connotations there. US was not quite as robust, but I, I threw that in and, and they're all up again over the course of the last 12 months. Um, so US house prices up about 5%. Sydney, well, Sydney's up about Three and a half on the ABS measure, but it's up about ten on the core logic oh, well, measure. No, it's, I think, oh, yeah, even year, more year, year to date. I think it's uh, it's like fourteen, fourteen, something extraordinary. Like Just a lazy fourteen point three. And even the UK with the Brexit things, which you know, may or may not have helped. Actually, um, you know, UK house prices, the twenty city home track measures up about six or seven percent. So even house prices haven't been a good thing to be shorting if uh, if that was your wish. So then you had a, a selection of commodities, a good uh, proxy for global demand. Uh, iron ore, uh, back in January, um, this seems like an awful long time ago now, but uh, iron ore spot price at 40 uh, US dollars, 40.5, currently around $83 um, for a gain of uh, 105%. Very nice. Very nice indeed. And you just have to look at Fortescue Metal uh, prices and Twiggy Forrest's personal wealth. And those shareholders in his company have done exceptionally well um, because there's something going on in the iron ore market. Um, price, yeah, there's, is it demand? Has it been a reduction in supply from firms reducing their output? But again, doing well, as is oil and as is copper as a proxy for industrial production as well. Yeah, sure. Oil in particular. Um, I mean, I think what is interesting about this is like there were very, very few people who were bullish iron ore at the start of the year. Um, Many were calling $25 a tonne, if I recall correctly. Yeah, uh, and oil similarly, like OPEC had done nothing for so long um, that the idea that a production cut might be on the table, and they were so um, forthright about this as well at the time, no, we're not, um, we're we're just going to continue just pumping it all out. Now we've got tiny little cuts, um, which of course has um, uh, sent the price soaring. Uh, so you're up there, Kook, $31.50 on WTI to uh, $52.70 for a gain of 67.3%. If only, if only I'd put all my money <laughs> behind some of these calls. That's right. Um, and the Aussie dollar then was the last one, 70 cents it was at the time, and it's now 75 for a tidy gain of uh, 7.1%. And I think that's um, um, one of the other interesting ones. Um, because 
you know, the Australian dollar, the strength of the Australian dollar has been one of the interesting um, stories of the year, hasn't it? It has. And again, there's, uh, it was easy to be bearish to the Aussie at the start of the year. The economy was softening. Commodity prices were weak. The Fed was going to hike four times this year. And there were reasons to be thinking that we'd be sort of skewing below 70 uh, rather than the mid-70s. You've uh, got to remember only a couple of months we were up around 78. Uh, and also, if you look at how the Aussie's gone, it's, it's been against a generally strong US dollar. So if you look at Aussie on the crosses mm. uh, against, yeah, well, again, in particular recently, but also you look at against Euro, um, CAD dollar even, we've been doing remarkably well. It's been a strong currency. Yeah, you look at the... Um, the- a lot of the, the strength in the Aussie dollar, particularly against the crosses, is because of what we're just talking about, iron ore and copper, and they're two of our biggest exports. You can throw in uh, coke and coal and thermal coal, and coke and coal, I can't remember, the, the figure's too large for my brain to go and process it. It's, it's gone up that much, but uh, that helps explain the Aussie dollar. But the, the overriding theme of all of them is that a lot of these uh, these bets were all premised about what's going on in the Chinese economy. You know, China's links to everything, to, to the, the global economy stretches everywhere now. So uh, if it was going to go and collapse, and a lot of people were saying that was going to happen, there was going to be a financial crisis. Uh, you know, within months, uh, I remember one uh, famous uh, analyst went and wrote an investor, and obviously that didn't go and, uh, and play out. But it, the, the key thing here is it probably uh, it's an ultimate contrarian trade that uh, that Cook masterminded here. You know, he was uh, greedy when everyone was fearful and. Perhaps the other lesson for 2017 is to be fearful when everyone is greedy because if there's been one thing that's, uh, that's changed dramatically over the last few months is that everyone seems to be bullish. Everything is great. The world economy is going to be fantastic. So just something to keep in mind potentially, you know, for what may lie in the, in the year ahead. Not pr- quite prepared yet, but I might put out a sell everything forecast for 2017 based on these price changes. <laughs> keep, because, the tr- keep the trend going. <laughs> well, you know, David, you're quite right. And I saw something that you sent out just a week or so ago on the proportion of analysts who are bullish US stocks. 90% or something like that, if I, if I recall correctly. That is screaming that US stocks are expensive. Uh, now, will we get to 20 or 21,000 first? I don't know. And in fact, that's sort of not really my game when I'm looking at these markets and these sorts of things. But when everybody's bullish, everybody's pricing in Trump to be a uh, economic sort of uh, stimulus type guy with his infrastructure spending and, and these sorts of things, Nobody's really concerned about Brexit anymore, even though the implications could be, you know, quite severe for global markets and and, and the like. And as I said, I'm I'm, op- I'm optimistic about the world economy next year, but from a market perspective, it's priced for perfection, and I'm not quite sure if we're there yet. We we also have a new source of uh, volatility uh, in 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 the market, which is Trump himself. Uh, I mean, he, he, he like he managed to smash uh, Lockheed Martin's stock. Uh, during the week by 3%, I think something like $4 billion in market cap he wiped off it, um, because he said the F-35 program was, uh, was cost, was out of control. So that's what he can do to one stock. Um, you know, and he did this with a tweet, uh, you know, uh, Lockheed Martin just like people just decided, well, actually maybe we'll, um, uh, get out of that, um, particular position. Um, but interesting that uh, I just think it's interesting that he's shown that he can do that to one stock. Maybe he can do it to a sector, um, you know. Well, in a funny way, um, good because again, the, the yeah we've, we were talking about our budget here in Australia a short while ago. The US still has a significant budget deficit. Its level of government debt still uh, it's, it's on track to hit 100 percent of US GDP. It's a big number. It's got a bigger budget debt and deficit problem than Australia's got by a multiple of four or five. 
So to the extent that Trump does put in some of his um, uh, corporate prudence and tightening up on expenses, and, and yeah, defence is one of the biggest expenses in the US, uh, let alone all the other costs, if he can actually trim the budget deficit by saying, hang on, we're not going to pay these absurd prices for a couple of planes that fly around and improve the budget bottom line, well, there are worse things that can happen. Absolutely. You've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Stephen, you have a book out for Christmas, which I've got a copy of in front of me, signed, which I'm tremendously excited about. Uh, it's Our World in Charts, which you've put together with Alan Kohler. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was one of those ones where... Um, Charts are wonderful. And again, David, you, you, you're, a, you're a charting freak. You put them out regularly with the material that you write. Do you try to distract people from my actual no. uh, writing? That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, as I say, a picture paints a thousand words. And, and in fact, that's the, that's the beauty of charts. It's in a way, if you say Australia's GDP was minus 0.5%, in a sense, so what? Unless you're an aficionado, what does that mean? But if you put a chart with quarterly GDP bars for the last 10 or 20, however many years you want, and then you put the bar of a minus 0.5 and colour it red and the plus ones are blue, you think, holy smokes, that is a big result. Look at that chart. That tells you why people are excited or concerned about this particular number. Charts put that sort of stuff in context, and that's when Alan and I got together and said, well, look, there's some really good charts around the place. Let's um, stick them in a book and uh, see what we can do and... Uh, so far, so good. Fantastic. Well, Our World in Charts, it's in uh, good bookstores uh, by Stephen and, uh, and Alan Kohler. Uh, Stephen, thanks so much for coming on the show. An absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you, David. And Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to everybody. Absolutely. As to you. All right, and Dave, uh, we'll see you next week for our Christmas special. Yeah, I think we've got a very special, uh, no, special plan. Um, maybe outdoors somewhere, maybe um, involving a tipple or so. I'm not sure, but we'll uh, we'll see what it requires. We'll do, and we'll <laughs> we'll review our, uh, our our the best and worst calls of the year, uh, which is going to be a stack of fun. Have we just done that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I've, I've, I've got a fear that my rate hike call might be in there. But anyway, you you take the good with the bad. <laughs> uh, you've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. The show is produced by Rick Salter. I'm Paul Colgan and we'll see you next week. This podcast was delivered by Australia Post. If you've ever received a branded package, you'll know it's a small detail that makes a big first impression. Now with Australia Post, you can design your own personalised packaging. For more info, go to auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.